0: Before we get into today's episode, I actually have a little personal announcement. If you've been listening for a while, you might have heard me mention my wife and I's struggles with infertility over the past three or four years, which in our case meant repeated early miscarriages. Well, I'm happy to report that my wife, Jaffrey, is pregnant with a healthy baby boy. After a lot of conversations, prayer, and time, we decided to work with a fertility clinic, They did a great job. It worked. We're incredibly grateful. She's 21 weeks as of today, and we are expecting the little guy in February. It's been kind of difficult to really believe that this is happening and to stop expecting repeated failure, which had really become the norm for us. But all signs are good. And most days, I am not worried at all, just excited to meet him. Um, Many of you have privately emailed or messaged me to share your own stories about this or offer an ear. And I have really appreciated that. Thank you so much. Um, Our story isn't over yet. I'm really hoping that this chapter ends in a healthy baby boy and it probably will. Um, But I will feel forever connected. I know my wife and I both will feel forever connected to anyone who's experienced infertility of any type, including the many couples and individuals for whom their story does not end with a healthy baby. Uh, If you have any more questions about this, you feel free to email me. Um, But to today's topic and guest, this was a really special interview, uh, and it was made possible as part of the Theopsych project hosted by Fuller Seminary's Office of Science, Theology, and Religion. Thank you, guys, for bringing Sarah and I together down in California back in July when we recorded this. Now, not only... Is Sarah a brilliant theologian working at the nexus of science and theology, but she has also been a participant in a recent psilocybin research trial. So we are getting both high-level thought and commentary and on-the-ground reporting. Uh, And also, toward the end of our chat, she speaks as a vulnerable human being going through her own struggles with God, and that part is what made, for me, this conversation Kind of an all timer, so I really recommend you listen all the way to the end, not just the part about her her trip. Uh, now, of course, a couple things: these drugs are illegal in most countries. I am not encouraging anyone to break the law or even to take these drugs in a country where it might be legal. I think what's more interesting and helpful here is what we can learn about spiritual experiences, about human brains, um, and indeed. That's why uh, this recent book on neuroscience, theology, and religion that we were all given at the conference at Fuller uh, included a section on psychedelic drugs, both their use in religious rituals around the world and ways in which studying them are contributing to furthering the field of neuroscience in general. So with all that in mind, here's my talk with theologian Sarah Lane Ritchie. So, Sarah, I just have to lead off by saying it's appropriate that we're doing this podcast about spiritual technologies in what feels like a Native American sweat lodge or a hot yoga studio. Mm
1: -hmm. This is basically true. We're stocked up well with water and other beverages, so uh, they'll be necessary.
0: Yeah, one of the directors of this seminar we're at was just like, do you guys have enough water? (laughs) Worried about our health. Um, Let's start with a little bit about your personal faith upbringing. Where did you kind of come from in the world of Christianity?
1: My background includes a little bit of everything. I have something of a hodgepodge sampler going on. I grew up in rural northern Michigan, and we were in a Southern Baptist church, of all things. I had a very conservative evangelical background. It'll be probably a familiar story for many of your listeners, for sure. I had a very warm family, a lot of very loving people in my church community, but there was quite a bit that I found I would now label as... Uh, oppressive and really challenging and difficult for me in that environment. And after spending quite a number of years in the Southern Baptist Church, I started going to a more charismatic youth group in my early teens, and that became very influential for me in uh, some other ways. And then when I was a teenager, my family actually moved overseas to Asia. So we were living in Pakistan and then Bangladesh, and we were going to house churches, basically. And again, very evangelical environment that I was in there. And then I started to wander quite a bit. My teen years were really difficult. My mom died in the middle of things, and I started to really struggle with my faith uh, in a very deep and profound way for various reasons, actually. I lacked from a very early age the experiential knowledge of God that I was looking for and that I was told that I should expect, given that I was pouring my entire life into the church and into a life of faith and discipleship. And so I was always very sensitive and open to God and to spiritual things and always lacked sort of the sense of God's love and presence that I was hungering for and that people around me seemed to be experiencing. And then uh, in undergrad, I was in a Free methodist institution, which was very good for me. At that point in my life, it provided a community for me that was really necessary. It was also very, very conservative, and uh, I still struggled to kind of find a, a home for myself, and intellectually and spiritually, I think. My mind was pressing me to ask very challenging questions of the faith in regards to biblical interpretation and science, of course, which is what my main area is now. And then after undergrad, I moved into a more Presbyterian direction. I went to Princeton Seminary in New Jersey, which is a Peace USA school. And now I'm in Scotland, which is a, in a very Church of Scotland context, which is also very much Presbyterian
0: some of that stuff about not experiencing God's presence Mm -hmm. the way people around you do, that's related to the kind of work you're doing. And another reason I want to ask you about, all of your academic work, is Mm -hmm. so that people don't think you are solely (laughs) a theologian in Scotland thinking about psychedelic drugs. So just kind of give us a brief overview of what your academic project is. Sure, sure,
1: sure. Yeah. And I should also say that the reason I gave you such a line by line, um, like kind of picture of my background is so that you know that, no, really, I know I really have come from like good evangelical stock. Like I know the Bible. I know what it is to live a devoted life of Christian faith. And I do have that kind of Experiential and academic knowledge as well. So uh, yeah, I know academically, I exist very much within the world of science and religion. Technically, my title now is lecturer in theology and science at the University of Edinburgh. So I get to play around with all the fun questions that keep us up at night. My work ranges from kind of large-scale metaphysical questions about divine action, for example, and the like.
0: How does God work in the exactly. world? Exactly. Yeah. So
1: if God exists and does something in the physical world, how do we think about that happening? What sort of philosophical models, theological models of the God-nature relationship are we looking at when making claims that God is doing something? And then most of my work focuses on issues surrounding the mind, the brain, philosophy of mind, what does it mean to be conscious? So looking at spiritual implications of different models of the mind and different recent neurological findings. And a lot of my work right now is focusing on kind of the ground up, the bottom up side of things. So looking at why people believe or don't believe in the sorts of experiences and practices and habits and features that lead people to experience God in a way that some do not. So yeah, looking at more of the ground up side of things, but always keeping it within a theological context and asking the difficult philosophical questions as well.
0: Speaking of ground up, spiritual technologies. So mm-hmm. these are ways that human beings over the millennia have basically planned their life in such a way to experience God. Is that appropriate? Right. right. What are some examples of that?
1: Sure. I mean, when I say spiritual technologies, this is a word that I've started working with years ago now, and a couple other people have used that term to mean various things. The way that I understand spiritual technologies is um, as ways that people have engaged with their environments in tangible ways to curate experiences and practices and lifestyles that contribute to some felt understanding of God. We can say God, but it doesn't have to be God. People engage in spiritual technologies to experience transcendence, basically, to experience something more than the natural world. And I talk about it within a Christian context, of course, but others don't. So spiritual technologies are any number of things that you probably wouldn't think of as being spiritual technologies. If you walk into a church on a Sunday morning and the light is down low and there is a 25-year-old with a guitar standing up front playing a three-chord song and there are candles on the um, altar, for example, or there are icons or stained glass.
0: Fog machines.
1: Fog machines. <laughs> spiritual Fog technology. Machines. Exactly. <laughs> These are all things that contribute to an immersive experience.
0: Cathedrals. Music, yoga.
1: Music. Right? Cathedral. Like mm-hmm. um,
0: checking the surroundings mm-hmm. before you meditate. Is meditation itself yep. a spiritual technology? Absolutely.
1: As okay. is prayer, singing, chanting, reciting creeds even. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Would uh, having your morning quiet time with the Bible count, or sure is would. so? Okay, so I want to. I do want to stop here because I think that there are certain Protestant traditions, and they would be we would call them low church, right? Yes. So Catholic and Anglican and Episcopal and Orthodox is mm-hmm. high church. Low church is like country Baptists, right. so as low as you can get, right? Right. No icons. We don't need mm-hmm. to do the Eucharist very often. It's just I'm reading the Bible. Mm-hmm. I'm preaching from the Word. Mm-hmm. We're maybe even acapella yeah. denominations that don't even want to do music. So. They are attempting to basically use no spiritual technologies, right? right? That's kind of what their goal is. Right. And what's the theological motivation for those denominations? That's a really good
1: question. That's a good way of framing it. The fear with including too much stuff in one's spiritual life is that you're going to be manipulating yourself, that you're going to be focusing on physical things that are not God, right? So of course, for many Protestant traditions, having icons in the church is idolatrous because we're trying to focus on an image that we can control, right? So there's a real wariness and, I, and perhaps an inappropriate wariness of over-mechanizing or controlling our understanding and experience of God.
0: But you would contend most of us do this anyway and rather than pretend that we don't, yeah. let's acknowledge and embrace that we do it and, and use those spiritual technologies to further our relationship with god
1: exactly and it's not actually i would go further than to say that most of us use spiritual technologies we have no choice but to engage with god through our bodies right so we have brains and bodies and it's not just our brains our minds are being formed engaged in very physical processes in a particular environment at all times we don't have any choice but to engage with our physical environments as we are experiencing god
0: that actually brings to mind a topic that's been going around while we've been at this seminar the last couple of weeks, which is dualism or monism. Mm. The idea is a human being basically a physical body with an immaterial soul? Do we have right. two substances, or is it maybe one substance that has two effects? You know, there's right, sort of a right. uh, but basically the kind of low church, no icon, no instruments, no technology mm-hmm. approach would have to be strongly dualist. It is our spiritual self. It is our soul that reaches for God. And our body is really not that important. And you want to say it's the opposite.
1: Exactly. There's a real dualistic impulse behind the rejection of spiritual technologies, for sure.
0: When I was thinking about spiritual technologies, I wanted to sort of see how far back in time we could go. So the earliest thing I could think of was cave paintings, specifically in the south of France. No one really knows what they were used for. It would appear to be something about the hunt. The current consensus view, which our friend Justin Barrett is Mm -hmm. worried about on evidentiary grounds, is that they were kind of a spiritual thing, a rite of passage, Mm an initiation thing. But regardless of exactly what they were used for, Mm -hmm. there are these weird paintings. Mm -hmm. They're in this certain part of the cave where there's not much light. That's a spiritual technology.
1: Yeah. And many of the scholars working on the cave paintings think that there was very likely some sort of um, mystical experience that was being depicted. And it's very likely that some sort of substance would have been ingested as part of this experience. Here we go. Yeah. And I'm, <laughs> we don't have to get into that quite yet, <laughs> but yeah. it, it, there uh, – all evidence points to the tentative conclusion that to be re- ritualistic and religious and to have intense experiences of the divine has been a part of what it has meant to be human since humans were humans.
0: Since humans had any sort of relationship with the divine, basically.
1: Yeah. Well, there. I mean, we, we can even go further than that to suggest that like religious culture, action, ritual, burial practices even, is actually almost part of what it means to be human. Yeah. So Uh, it's constitutive.
0: Robert Bella, the late great sociologist, thought it predated language. Exactly. Religious ritual. Rhythmic dancing, chanting, Mm -hmm. the original precursor of the modern worship service all happened before we could even speak to each other in words. Yes. Yes. It's incredible.
1: Yep. And there are some theories that suggest that it's unlikely that religions would develop if certain key figures at the center of these, um, religions, proto-religions hadn't had some sort of intense experience of God. So it's unlikely that creeds would have developed before a vision of God or, you know, the divine in some way.
0: Yeah. That just anecdotally, that lines up with kind of the way I increasingly think about my faith and other people's faith Mm -hmm. and theology itself, which is, you know, people call uh, theology, the, the old one is faith seeking understanding. Exactly. But I want to say, but faith equals basically raw religious experience contextualized in a group. Yeah. And then you yeah. seek understanding with language and mm-hmm. with your group and right. your tradition and all that. But it kind of starts with, if nobody experienced transcendence, right? we probably wouldn't have religion.
1: Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, there's this line that belief is actually more of an experience of what is real, right? So what we think about the divine, what we commit ourselves to in regards to God is often a formalized statement of what we have experienced to be true, to be real.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense to me. We were going around the table uh, the other day talking about our projects Mm -hmm. and one of your projects is on neuroplasticity. Mm -hmm. And I thought that might be a a nice thing to chat about before we get into this. So talking about taking part in one's creation of belief, making it more likely that seems very related to Mm -hmm. this conversation. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's sort of how I got into the psychedelic research actually was through some work that I've done on neuroplasticity and belief formation. So neuroplasticity, and many of you have heard of it, it's a buzzword these days, but neuroplasticity is basically just the brain's ability to change its structure and function in response to experience. It's basically a fancy- Making new
0: pathways, people talk like that, yeah.
1: Yep, it's basically a fancy word for the learning process. So when you have experiences of certain sorts over time, those experiences become the most natural neural pathway in your brain, and and it changes the way that you experience the world, and also it affects and structures the way that you're likely to behave and engage with your surroundings. And we know that there are certain features of experiences that make it more likely that the brain will change more significantly in response to these experiences. For example, focus attention, super important for long-term brain change. So when you have a meditative practice, if you never actually sit down and practice, your meditation is not going to be a very impactful... Tell me about it, Yeah, Sarah. exactly right. <laughs> like I have like 15 <laughs> different meditation apps on my phone. How yeah. many do I? Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like how can I game myself into uh, meditating more? Mm-hmm. So focus attention is super important. You need to be... You're unlikely to have brain changes in response to something you're not actually focused on, right? So it's important that your attention is directed in a direction.
0: Interesting. Okay, so the spiritual technologies are meant to direct attention. Yes, exactly. So that new habits and pathways can be formed.
1: Yep, exactly. Repetition is also really important. And the third thing is, or a third thing is what we call emotional salience. So the more emotionally intense your stimuli, the more likely that it will become that it will have significant changes in your brain.
0: So neuroplasticity might be considered the underlying brain capacity that makes the conversation about spiritual technologies possible.
1: Exactly, yes. It makes it meaningful because it makes those
0: technologies effective, basically. Right, right.
1: The key thing here is that The brain is plastic whether you like it or not. So your brain is going to be changing and forming over time whether or not you want it to. So once we realize that is always happening, your brain is always changing in response to our experience, it not only makes it possible to talk about spiritual technologies, but actually that's the responsible thing to do.
0: Yeah. Okay. So let's, um, the reason I want to do all this stuff before, (laughs) this is not just a conversation about drugs and we're going to start with a bunch of caveats here because- This is a weird topic to bring it into psychedelics. It's a a sexy area. It's something that not only people have asked me on the Facebook group to talk about, but multiple Mm -hmm. people in person have said, you got to do an episode on psychedelics because the new research that's coming out is is very buzzy. But let's just do it. I have five of these (laughs) caveats so that people are clear what we are not saying. The first is that we're not taking this lightly. We're not going to ignore the real consequences of both substance addiction and abuse Mm -hmm. and the consequences of people who have fried their brains by using psychedelic, abusing psychedelics, right? A lot of people who grew up in the 60s and 70s. -hmm. So that's a real concern. Another note that I'd like you to talk about is just what do we do when research is early? Most of us in the general community don't have a good calibration for this is new research. Mm -hmm. This research has a thousand studies over 40 years mm-hmm. and the levels of confidence. Can you talk a little bit about that? Cause you surely have to think about that when you're pouring through the research.
1: Right. So there's always a question when you're doing anything between science and theology. Well, how new is too new? Theologians historically have tended to err on the side of caution, probably overly so uh, not being willing to engage with the research on any particular topic until it had Almost become <laughs> a tidal wave, exactly, crashing exactly, on them. Yeah. exactly. It's almost like the science has to like hit them over the head before they're willing to engage with it. I mean, this could be a particular you know trait of me as a person. I am excited by new research, and I tend to approach the theological task in a very constructive, tentative way, and I hold these things very loosely. So when I'm talking about the relevance of current psychedelics research to theology, I'm not giving any sort of definitive line. I am constantly open to defeaters in my argument. I'm very open to contradictory evidence uh, about psychedelics research and I'm working with the best that we have available to us at the time. And when things seem Robust and the, and findings seem robust and they seem important, which they do currently in the scientific world. That is exactly the time when theologians should start to be a player in the conversation.
0: Yeah, the research is early, but some of the findings are quite stark. They are. Uh, very they high are. percentages of checking with people years later yeah. and all that stuff. We're, we're going to go through a summary of the findings in a minute. The next caveat is, uh, and this is a big one age and brain development. Mm-hmm. So, in one sense, of all the listeners of this show, mm-hmm. I could predict that mm-hmm. people like 16 to 20 might be the most interested in this topic. Sure. Neurologically speaking, they are the worst at predicting the future yep. and thinking about their own future. Yeah. And at their age, drug use can be catastrophic for sure. brain development. Even marijuana with a 15, 16 year old it just doesn't do what it would do to me at 35. It just. Sure doesn't because my brain's not still growing in the same way. Mm. So I feel like that's important to mention. Mm -hmm. You know, of course, we're just talking about clinical trials and whatnot here. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about buying shrooms from some dude on the street. Yes. But even if you were and you're young, you need to be especially careful about that. Right. And the next one, and this is this was Justin's worry. um, Justin Barrett, who's Mm -hmm. sort of leading the seminar. There is an overly sexiness, he called it, to brain scan research. Like these days, he thinks this is kind of right now the queen of tools, Mm -hmm. but we don't actually know a ton about what it's saying to us. It's basically a very blunt tool at this point. We can measure some activity in certain areas and that's kind of all we can do. What do you think is important to – caveat about brain scan research.
1: Sure. Right. And so there's a real pushback right now against um, using pretty pictures of brain scans to kind of make your point seem more powerful, right? So like for a while there, like there was all this talk about the God spot in the brain and like, oh, look, something lights up when you're praying. And the neuroskeptic response to that, well, yeah, of course something is lighting up in your brain. Like everything that you experience is mediated through your brain in one way or another. It would be more surprising if nothing was lighting up in your brain. And that would
0: be crazy. That yeah, would be right. the crazy
1: thing. Yeah. That would be much more significant. If you could show me a
0: blank brain <laughs> yes, scan, yes. Yeah, now you've got my attention. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Exactly. And so that's, I mean, I appreciate the neuroskeptic response insofar as we want to caution against using, you know, sexy, sparkly pictures to... Uh, basically just emphasize what we already knew to be true, which is, yes, of course, the brain is involved in conscious activity. Sometimes just the fMRI scans can kind of distract us from looking at other ways of analyzing the experiences themselves. And so that's not what I'm doing. Um, However, I do think that neuroscience is actually really important, especially when we're talking about psychedelics, because it allows us to see what areas of the brain are acting differently under these substances and then we can compare that to more ordinary states of consciousness and that basically allows us to understand the mechanisms by which the experiences are occurring. And so basically, it just gives us a more fine grained understanding of what's yep. happening.
0: And one of the books they gave us at the seminar uh, is uh, co authored by Warren Brown, practicing Christian sure. neuroscientist. Sure. And there's a little sub chapter in the book about mm-hmm. psychedelics and what this, but his chapter is more like we're learning things about the brain right. through what we see that psychedelics do yes. to the brain. Exactly, and so yeah. he's obviously not promoting drug use. Right. He's just saying, look, this is real, that this is right. advancing the field.
1: And it's actually, what's really interesting is that the research is not only interesting for psychedelics research, it actually teaches us quite a bit about what we would call more normal brain activity. Yes, that's that's what I meant to explain. And and actually, I think it was back in the 60s research, early research on psychedelics, may have been the 50s actually, early research on psychedelics was like Mm -hmm. important in us understanding the serotonin system of the brain. So sometimes there are effects well outside of psychedelics research and that's important Mm -hmm. to remember too, Yeah.
0: And then the last one is just kind of touched on this. There is a big difference between taking part in a lab trial Mm -hmm. with a measured dose of pure psilocybin and buying shrooms from somebody. Yes, yes, yes. That you don't know or even if you do know them, it's just – so we're not talking about that. We are talking about your experience in this trial and then Mm -hmm. we're talking about the research findings of these official trials. Yep. So first I'd like to get a summary of the findings before we get into your own experience um, I have three things I'd like to talk about at least, and then if mm-hmm. you need to add any, the experience itself, what, mm-hmm. what we've learned from the research, the long-term efficacy, which is some of sure. the most intriguing right. stuff, and then the comparisons to people who are master meditators. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Um,
0: so let's start with the experience itself. Like, what do we know from these findings?
1: hmm Well, it depends on the uh, substance that we're looking at. So like MDMA is going to be different than LSD, and that could be slightly different. Although there's some debate about this, that can be different than psilocybin. One thing that we didn't talk about is when we talk about drugs, people have usually a visceral reaction about that. So I mean, I use the word drug here, but I want to always emphasize that that psychedelics the effects of them are very, very different than cocaine or heroin or something. In fact, psychedelics are not addictive. They work by different mechanisms. At a qualitative level, they're almost anti-addictive actually uh, in some ways because they often create very challenging experiences for people.
0: Yeah, interesting. Um,
1: And the neuromechanisms are not there for addiction to happen in the way that it would for cocaine or heroin or something like that. And this probably goes without saying, but there are very political and social reasons why certain substances have been labeled as drugs. Basically they've been outlawed for very particular historical, social, cultural reasons, and basically anyone working in the field would confirm that if we were to go back in time and outlaw drugs based on their harmful effects, alcohol would be outlawed, LSD and psilocybin probably would not be. So, oh, just yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, I think uh, one little devil's advocate there is that if people take too many psychedelics, they can be so different where their behavior is very hard to control. Sure. And you might think that from a public health level, even if it's not harming the person mm-hmm. as much, you just don't want it's almost like people being on PCP or something where sure. they so- really become different. And you might right. not want that even if at it's a societal level, at a societal level yeah, you sure. just might not want to deal with that much. Like we want you to be something. productive.
1: We want you to be in the office from nine to five. Kind yeah, of if thing, you're going to yeah. have a drink
0: to stay in the office, well, at least you're still working. Right.
1: Sure. Right. So there are different levels at which you can debate how much is helpful for society. Sure. Yeah. Fine. But okay. Yes. Okay, so in the brain. In the experience. The experiences experience itself. Themselves. What do we know? Right. Um, well, basically that these experiences are incredibly powerful. At a phenomenological level, right? So basically the experience of it for the person that's having it is usually very intense, very powerful. We know that people who have psychedelic experiences, who take substances at higher doses, tend to um, rate these experiences as being in the top five most spiritually intense experiences of their lives. Yeah. And that's for whether that, I mean, that holds whether or not you're a religious person. So very, very, very spiritually significant, um, personally meaningful. A lot of times people will talk about the experiences as being sort of like combining 10 years of therapy into one afternoon. Right. So this, the experiences are definitely contextualized, right? So they're very specific to the person's own life history, religious context, personal issues, psychological traits, Actually, usually they're ineffable. So there's this this quality of being difficult to explain to people. You can tell them, well, here's what I saw in this experience, but you're not actually able to communicate the subjective effect it had on you. They're usually just very overwhelming and powerful. They can be very difficult. So um, researchers who lead these studies will often prepare people to go where your mind takes you, right? So we've all heard of bad trips. Oftentimes, a bad trip is basically somebody resisting going where their mind wants to take them on these trips, right? So what, what, when you resist kind of having the insights and, and, and going through the more challenging parts of the experiences, that's usually when you start feeling anxious or feeling as if you'll never come out of the experience, and so usually the researchers will say, you know, you need to trust that you'll be okay. You know, you're here in a safe setting. You can trust your mind here. Uh, you, we don't know what will happen, but you you, you, feeling, you need to go the difficult places. I'm
0: feeling scared listening. I know. <laughs> this is like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is overwhelming. Like I'm getting a little bit anxious listening to you. But sure, it makes right. sense. Yeah. Some of the most astounding findings have been this long-term efficacy. You can give us the actual numbers, but my memory is like five, 10 years later, sure. they're trying to figure out like, well, was that temporary? Right. Was it only spiritually significant in the moment? Right, like- right, right. But no, they go back years later. So what's that?
1: Yeah. So the current wave of research, right, um, is quite recent. So we'll be looking at long-term findings over decades, um, these longitudinal studies. We do have research from the first wave of psychedelic research back in like the 50s and stuff. And from those studies, we know that people who have had these experiences on psychedelics tend to continue to rate them as being – uh, one of the most powerful experience, and this is actually after only one experience, only one trip, right? They, they
0: have one, one trial. Yes, one
1: trial one or one experience on a trial. And they will rate that experience as being one of the most significant experiences of their lives at a level with losing a parent and the birth of a child. Like that level of significance. Yeah. And that lasts for decades. Because that never, that never goes away. Wow. Yep. So the level of insight and the intensity of experience never goes away.
0: Now, there is a caution in that, right? Sure. Because this is like a supercharged spiritual technology. Yeah, sure. If you're interested in that, you have to be really careful. Yeah, sure. Because if yeah. you do that wrong, right. then not so much the birth of a child, but the death of a child or something right. like that, sure, it, sure. Can, it can be really impactful. And then another finding that I found interesting is comparing the brain scans of mm-hmm. people on psilocybin to people who are very adept at meditation at the moment that they describe Mm -hmm. feeling that they're kind of peak oneness with God or with the universe. And there's like, they're really similar.
1: Right. So these experiences, the loss of ego, dissolution of the self, right? Sometimes you get to uh, a peak experiences at very high doses where you do feel as if you become one with the universe, right? And those tend to be very spiritually significant because you do feel as if you have um, not only had an experience of God in the universe, but or ultimate reality, but you also sort of become one with ultimate reality in a way that is obviously very difficult to talk about. But even now, even in even within those peak experiences, they're structured by your own religious context. So it's not like you're going to be you don't necessarily walk out of these experiences and hold a different like religious framework or something. But it does change you the way that you view those your religious framework and. uh Interestingly, your religious framework shapes the way that you have it, shapes your experience. So, the content of the experience is impacted by your own background. So, if you are a religious person, you're more likely to have a mystical religious experience than if you don't have a religious framework.
0: Interesting. But these meditators, yes. they get to a right. yes, level right. without drugs. Sure, right? sure,
1: sure. Well, yes, exactly. So, he, Very interesting research on this. Long-term meditators do exhibit very similar sorts, patterns of brain activity, similar sorts of experiences and long-term effects as people who are on psychedelics. Of course, the difficulty here is that most of us will never get to the proficiency and the experience of a long-term meditator that, you know, there's a kind of a, a... I mean,
0: in theory, though, we could. In theory,
1: you could. And actually what we find is that many people who have initial experiences on psychedelics then transition into a meditation practice that is often much more robust than the rest of us will ever achieve because they know what they're, they know what they're going for. So drugs
0: might literally be a gateway drug to not needing drugs.
1: Exactly. So (laughs) psychedelics can be a gateway drug to a long-term meditation practice for sure, because it shows you what is possible. It shows you the sorts of experiences that are available to your mind. And um, of course, they're also meditation is also sort of without the, the risks the psychological risks that can sometimes right. attend psychedelics
0: so let's take a break and when we come back we are going to talk about the way that pre-modern communities have used drugs in religious mm-hmm. settings and then we're going to get to your own experience in okay. this psilocybin trial sounds good Yes, I did just pick one of the more psychedelic sounding uh, music clips for this transition. Uh, So a lot of you guys know Tom Ord, Thomas J. Ord. He's a theologian. He's been on this show twice already um, and more to come. He's a friend of the podcast. He offered to do a conversation with me for patrons only all about his kind of main theory, which is called essential kenosis um, in his book, God Can't. Also, his other book, The Uncontrolling Love of God, uh, which is the uh, slightly less popular, slightly more scholarly version, and we had a great chat. We, we talked through what exactly that view is. It's a type of open and relational theism um, that says kind of what God and God can and can't do. Um, and we talked about uh, some implications of his view uh, around the resurrection of Jesus the eschaton or the afterlife, uh, miracles, and the inspiration of Scripture. Here are a couple of clips from that conversation to uh, "What Your Whistle."
2: I think survivors, victims, yeah, people who have been hurt deeply, uh, they really warm up to the, that provocative title because they've been told that God allowed the things that happened to them, or that God was punishing them, teaching them a lesson, whatever. Um, and so it may be shocking to everyone, but it's good news to a lot of folks who've been given other kinds of answers that they just found implausible.
0: Other kind, folks who've been given other kinds of answers that they found implausible (laughs) is
2: the definition of my listenership, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) For these people, they wonder why God wasn't there to prevent. What happened to them? And uh, the answer they're usually given is God permitted it. God allowed it, either because God gives free will. And even though God could take away that free will, God decides not to sometimes, or it's a part of some greater good, or God's just trying to allow this thing, or God is allowing these things to try to help us build our character. These kinds of answers are the ones that I think most people have heard that they've that they've thought might have some validity. And my book is attacking those in a particular kind of way. So as you were saying that, I thought there's actually two different
0: ways someone might have the same um, complaint or, or want to address the same question. There's an abstract and an embodied way. The mm. abstract way would be something like, I really want to believe in God, but the
2: problem of evil uh, is a real issue for me. You know, let's say uh, a man or a woman is raped and they think, well, you know, God didn't want that rape, but that person has free will and God either honors that free will or, you know, something God wasn't going to intervene to stop it. And so then they might say, okay, God couldn't have prevented my rape, but that rape was 10 years ago and I'm still struggling with the trauma. I still have horrific dreams. I still get emotional attacks Why can't God fix the problems that I'm dealing with now long after that particular event? And so one of the things I want to say and do say in in this book is that these kinds of events continue to have force and God cannot single-handedly prevent them in the first place and cannot single-handedly heal us. There has to be uh, some cooperation at some level. Some healing might take time. and, And in fact, some healing might not occur until the afterlife. So if that sounded good to you, or if you want to become a patron anyway, because you want
0: to support the show, you want to be involved in the patron-only Facebook group, which is really alive and kicking these days. Uh, Or if you want these two exclusive patron-only episodes every month, go to patreon.com slash dancoke, or you have permission, pod.com, and click become a patron. Back to the episode. Okay, so we've established neurologically, mm-hmm. and maybe we might even say behaviorally, why people might use drugs mm-hmm. in a religious context, mm-hmm. especially if they are pre-scientific and they don't live in right. societies where these things are illegal. They are literally finding them in plants and mushrooms in the ground, right. thinking about um, like, who, who are some of these groups of people that we have, like where and when are we talking about?
1: This is a hard question to answer because basically there is no group of people that we've ever found that haven't used some sort of like substance at some point. Yeah. So it's it's, – Well, that – That's a strong claim. Sorry. that um I think that is different in like Eskimos. Like it's like where they don't have a lot of plants. So basically (laughs) unless they
0: live in frozen tundra.
1: Yeah. People – Basically every
0: pre-modern society has some – religious ceremony with some sort of plant that affects their mind. In exactly. Some, way. some
1: sort of psychoactive substance is usually in, in So marijuana
0: with, is yeah. uh well, Rastafarians obvious, but not but in some Native American societies yes, use yes, cannabis, yeah. right?
1: Like pe- it, well yeah, and like peyote. And peyote ayahuasca is obviously a big Latin one right America, now in Latin America. Right? Yeah. And in variations of these basically again like any they're easier to study perhaps in indigenous cultures, but it's been a b- part of basically every culture and people group that we can study.
0: Obviously, there's too many examples to go through them all, but could you pick one that you know particularly well and maybe just kind of apply what we've been talking about? Walk us through the experience of what you think is going on mm-hmm. using this drug as a spiritual technology or this drug combined with the sweat lodge like we're sure, sitting yeah, in right yeah, now yeah. or combined with the 15-year-old rite of passage or mm-hmm. you know, like, give us a, a concrete example.
1: The concrete examples that come to mind most readily and will be familiar to a lot of listeners are from ayahuasca in Latin America because they are very ritualistic and religious. So um, in fact, there's a real pushback right now against all the Westerners who are like – trying to appropriate yeah. ayahuasca in a non-religious context. Right. So there's a lot of kind of there on, on various levels there are dangers there. I just
0: want to go on the record if I ever take ayahuasca it will be in a religious context.
1: Yes, exactly. And that's and that's I think a, that's a good commitment.
0: So I am um, I am free from the mm-hmm. cultural appropriation right. critique.
1: Right. Right, right, Yeah, so in these experiences though they occur in a communal context with a group of people usually and there are uh, there's always like a shaman, like a priest involved. The shamans that use ayahuasca, they have their own like proprietary blends going on. So they're interesting. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's actually one of the risks is that it's hard to know exactly what is yeah. in that particular blend of that particular shaman. But yeah, so these religious leaders will have a blend of a beverage usually with ayahuasca in it, and there will be some sort of discussion. There will be. I haven't participated in one of these, so I don't know from like I don't have firsthand knowledge sure. of this. There will be like religious like sayings and phrases that are used. He will talk about the experience, contextualize it. This is all basically context, set and setting. Basically, the t- clinical word for what these leaders are doing is creating a set in a setting. Uh, I believe people are often in enclosed spaces when they, when they're doing this, and they will go on for uh, a couple of nights. So you might do one; you'll have a drink of this beverage like one night, and then like the next night have a, another drink of a slightly different version of it. And yeah, and again, you'll be with people that usually the setting will have been prepared for you. You know, there'll be very, there'll be mats on the floor or something, or there'll be for ayahuasca. I believe there are like buckets because you end up vomiting quite yeah, a bit. Throw up, yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, everything's very ritualized. Every, yeah. That's probably a key part of that is, that is that in indigenous cultures, these substances are taken in very ritualized ways. It's always contextualized. I think it's fairly rare that people would just be Ingesting substances for the fun of it, yeah, yeah.
0: At least that's certainly not how it's designed. Mm-hmm. What are the kind of things that people report, for instance, from uh, an
1: ayahuasca ceremony like yeah. that? Um, it varies very widely. It's it's interesting to me that these experiences always become so personal so quickly. So you're going to have an experience that fits with your own life. And so you know, if an American goes to Latin America and does ayahuasca. They'll have an experience about the history of their own lives. They might meet their father. They might go like soaring into the clouds and, and, you know, they're going to have a very, an experience that is unique to them. That being said, and other experiences, your setting can influence the quality of your own experience. So for me, example, when I was, I was in this study and there was a soundtrack being played and there was a, one of the songs on the soundtrack was of a like um. It was like a jungle kind of drum beating song. And it that kind of made its way into the my experience. I,
0: I cannot not laugh <gasps> about I know, that. I, I know. mean I, I'm sure they had perfectly good <gasps> yeah, research yeah. reasons for including that, but it also sounds so stereotypical. I
1: know. Exactly. Exactly.
0: Well, let's talk about that. So that's my next question anyway. Sure. So you took part in one of these sure. psilocybin, which is mushrooms, lab trials mm-hmm. in the UK. Right. Just walk us through that. Uh, We we talked about at dinner the other night. You had a a kind of a mixed experience. I sure did. Yeah.
1: Yeah. What I should say first is that a lot of the research that has happened on psychedelics thus far has examined the substances effects on mental health issues. Okay. So we didn't talk about this earlier, but I should mention it here that much of the research has been on the treatment potential of psilocybin and LSD in particular, other things as well, ibogaine is a big one, so that the effects of these substances on depression, anxiety, uh, uh, fear of death in terminally ill cancer, cancer patients. Yeah, that's a
0: really interesting yep. one. Yep. And
1: addiction as well. So yep. smoking cessation, I was looking at a study this week actually comparing the rates of smoking cessation success in patients who just went through like this normal smoking cessation program. Yep it's like 17% success rate comparing the g- group that used psychedelics in conjunction with therapy, that group was 80%, uh, so th- 80% th- these are those findings
0: rate. that people are freaking out about. Yeah, exactly. They're early. They exactly. haven't exactly. been replicated exactly. yet, but yes. that's crazy. If that's yes. true, that's crazy. And, and really I think
1: cool. uh, uh, perhaps more, uh, On point for our discussion, so terminally ill cancer patients um, who fear their death, many end-of-life patients are terrified. They are. And we don't often talk about that in our culture. We want to talk about people having a peaceful death and things. I would be totally terrified. A lot of people die very scared. And after using psilocybin in these studies, upwards of 80% of people experienced at least a significant reduction in their end-of-life fear. Many people experienced a complete loss of their fear of death, which is, I think that is one of the more, I think, significant findings because it's it, it has such a pastoral implication.
0: It does for people who are already going to die, but you can already start to see the worry like, what if, you know, militant jihadist groups sure. get a hold of psilocybin and, and indoctrinate yep. all their people into not being afraid to be a suicide bomber. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's powerful and with power yeah, yeah, comes yeah. responsibility, yada, 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 right?
1: It's not that people end up... Wanting to die or seeking death, though, it's when you look at the long term effects for people who are not terminally ill cancer patients, the fear of death does go down. um, But it also changes the way they live their lives. Right. So So it might
0: make them less likely to be a suicide bomber.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, they're not living. Sure. Perhaps. Who knows? Right. I mean, they're not not living from a place of anxiety and fear anymore. And one of the actually so I should also say this before we get into my experience is that very recent findings suggest that what is happening in the brain When we are on psychedelics, is that it's um, disrupting what is called the default mode network. The default mode network is basically your brain's default system. It's what is always it's the way it's the background software that is always playing, whether or not you're focusing on something or not. Right? And 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 this is part of what makes us human. It allows us to function and have a sense of self and have a sense of like needing to navigate our environments with care and caution. But what happens is that in many of us, the default mode network, especially in our Western context, becomes overactivated and we get higher rates of anxiety and fear. And basically, our default mode network starts controlling us instead of being useful. When you're on psychedelics, that default mode network is disrupted and your brain is able to make new neural connections. In fact, neurons themselves actually grow during and after the psychedelic experiences. It leads to the rapid growth of dendrites on the neurons. Allowing for more connections between neurons, new mm-hmm. sorts of connections are able to be made. What this means is that you become become able to make new choices about your life and to see your reality in a different way, which gets back to the sort of um, you know the cancer patients. All right, all this to say that the recent research, much of it has been on uh, treating addiction, treating anxiety and depression, mental health issues. Now the research is moving in a slightly different direction for some people to look at the effects of uh, psychedelics in healthy patients, healthy volunteers. So for the particular study that I participated in.
0: How much hubris did you have to have to yeah. say, I'm a healthy volunteer? I know, right? <laughs> I may
1: have, I know, I know. I may it have had to like. <laughs> numbers there <a> little bit. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm like, well, yeah, let's define healthy. And they, and they do. I mean, they screen out people who have serious mental health. I'm, I'm kidding. Yeah. But um, yeah, so the research is moving in a different direction, trying to look at the potential uh, benefits of psychedelics for people who just want to change their perspective on life, have more meaningful encounters, and for me me, the the way I would focus that is to say that we can start to think about using psychedelics as spiritual technologies. Spiritual
0: technologies. Yeah. Full circle. okay. Full circle. So just put us in the spot. You're in what? A white-walled room? There's someone in a white lab coat? What's going on?
1: Right. So they basically transform a, a normal hospital room into what they consider to be a conducive environment for the um, psychedelic experience. So they put stuff on the walls. They put like a poster of like a forest like on the wall. Black and, light posters and uh, stuff. Yeah, sort of, sort of actually. There are parts of it that are sort of stereotypical. Yeah. Um, and this is actually, <laughs> I will say this actually, this is one of the not ideal parts of participating in a research trial because you don't have any control about tailoring your experience to your own personal personality or you psyche it in your living psyche. room or something. Exactly. Yeah, you yeah. can't listen to your own music. You can't put up your own posters. Like you have to sort of just go with what all the other participants have had.
0: Interesting. That's cuz they need it. They need to they control need to standardize. for all those exactly. Factors. They need a yeah. standard.
1: So you're basically in a glorified um hospital room that has been transformed to feel more like a like a bedroom.
0: Okay. Like a stoner 17-year-old's bedroom, yep, basically. <laughs> Okay. So what do they get? Is it in a cup? Is it right. a tablet? No. What is it? So you
1: actually do two, you, there, you, you actually do this twice. The first one, well, one of them is uh, like a placebo. So I okay. did this on two different days. So they give you little pills. The psilocybin was synthesized in the trial that I was in to allow for more accurate and, you know, yep. the purity, Again, for purity purposes. Yeah, I have to control it, yep. control it. So it was a synthetic psilocybin. So they basically give it to you in a cup and you have tons of preparation. They prepare you. There were two researchers that were in the room with me the whole time. And you're very. You're made to feel very, very safe.
0: Well, let's. Uh, if I remember from our conversation the other night, there were sort of phases... Yeah. to your experience can you walk us through these phases. Yeah, the phases are,
1: there are phases and there's like a coming up phase, which is when you first start feeling the effects of the drug. It's when you start to notice your visual field changing a bit. So if you're looking at like a pattern on a wall, you might see the pattern changing a bit or like starting to shift. On LSD, what happens is people start to see colors much more vividly. Everything is um, accentuated. And the study that I was in also included a prescribed soundtrack. So there are actual music researchers out there who figure out like which songs and like tones rhythms correspond to particular brain activity in different parts of the experience and so all the participants listen to like the same four-hour soundtrack
0: so to to understand this so there is data about from fmri scans Mm -hmm. over time through Mm -hmm. sort of an average psilocybin experience and they they know which parts of the brains are activated and then there are musicologists or something who do fmri scans on certain kinds of music and they try and line it up
1: yeah, exactly. And so the soundtrack that was used for me, uh, and this was in London, is,
0: is just Pink Floyd and Enya. Yeah,
1: it's <laughs> no. that's it's actually it's, very, it's quite diverse, but it's, you're yeah. not too off the mark. Okay, okay. <laughs> You're not too off the mark. And uh, the the playlist that was used for me was from Johns Hopkins.
0: Some somewhere there's a guy going. Yeah. Taking a toke of a joint. Go! I can't believe they gave me this job. I know. <laughs> Exactly. (laughs) No, okay, but seriously. So, so just walk us through some of these phases, right?
1: So, first phase coming up. I felt like it was a very quick come up for me in my experience, but um, for others it'll be slower. Uh, So, the visual fields started changing quite quickly, and that can be that can be really pleasurable as well. You know, it's just Mm -hmm. you just feel like you're so immersed in your environment and the colors and the sensations. You're very in your body. You know, you feel just very alive. Everything is a little bit more intense. You know, that can feel great. That can feel really good. You're not distracted. By anything. You know, it's it's nice to not be, your mind's not wandering. Then you go into a more for me, I went into a very, I quickly went to a very challenging part of a trip where I felt like I was being confronted by all the artificial, artificiality in my life. Okay. This will sound very trippy, but I felt as if I were swimming in a like a pool of like Pepto Bismol pink stuff. It was horrible. It was like, and I was surrounded by like made-in-China toys and things. It was sort of like a carnival-esque feel. And in this experience, I knew that I was experiencing a metaphor for the levels of facades and faking and kind of posturing that we all do in our lives. And in this really intense phase, it was really painful. I just wanted to be, like, on a mountaintop out in the middle of the forest. Like, everything in me was craving release from the artificial world in which most of us spend our lives and artificial. I also mean inauthenticity. It's probably a better word inauthenticity. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So this went on for quite a while and I, and I got, it was, it was starting to feel almost suffocating for me. I was like, I have got to not be in this inauthentic place. Uh, and we could talk about, we know what that means, but I think most of us have an understanding of the areas of our lives in which we're not being authentic. And then after that though, it was great. Things shifted for me very quickly. um, very suddenly. And I went from like that artificial pink kind of area to a different, it was dark. I mean, it was like physically, it felt very dark. Like it was, it was, it was like a, I felt like I was in a, a nighttime space where I was basically watching the creation of the world. <laughs> so, <laughs> and again, again, this is one of those things oh where gosh. you can't say it without laughing, but in the moment it feels really sure. profound. Well, and,
0: and again, let's just remind ourselves it's ineffable in a yes, sense. Exactly. You're trying to find language for yeah. something that's not yeah, very easy. Yes, exactly. Okay, so but um, this is incredible. Go exactly. on. Exactly. Yeah. I
1: felt like I was watching from the outside a little bit. It was actually a very feminine space. I felt like I was watching um, the earth being formed and created. And it was like I was watching these um, women dancing and creating the universe. And I was being invited into it. I was being invited into this deep, primal, feminine energy. And interestingly, it did not feel antithetical in any way to my Christian identity. I remember that was actually a felt part of that experience for me.
0: Interesting. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it wasn't, I mean, I'm not making any sort of claims about pantheism or, you know, a yeah. feminine God or whatever. I'm I'm saying that like it was Your being felt sense. My felt sense of- This lines up. Yep. Yeah, Yeah. it was fine. So um, I was part of that creation of the universe for a while. And um, after that, that was sort of like the end of the super intense peak experience. And after that, I started coming out of it. But that part is actually amazing as well because it's sort of like an, a reintegration of yourself. And so I felt as if I was on a mountaintop, literally on a mountaintop in like the crisp mountain air. And I felt like I was being invited to sing and to 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 participate in um in a creative expression of life and growth and I remember at one point in this, there was this one particular piece of sacred choral music that came on. It's called O Magnum Mysterium. And uh, it's a beautiful choral piece. And it it was one of the most transcendent, like six minutes of my life, actually.
0: When you've heard that again, does it trigger anything? Yes, yes.
1: Yes. Huh. It, this is actually one of the interesting parts of psychedelics is that you, things that you experience in these, it affects the way that you view reality afterwards. So I definitely, when I hear the song now, I, it does something to me now that I wouldn't have before.
0: You could speculate about this yourself, or if you happen to know anything in the research, I was interested in you saying that final stage, mm-hmm. it sounds different than like being drunk and coming down so from different. alcohol. You're just kind of tired yeah, yeah, and yeah. you wish that you were at home. Right. And, This is – it sounds to me like it's a more –
1: Yeah, it's very crisp. It's very clear. It's very – you never feel –
0: Integrated. That's what I'm talking about. It's very integrated. So is there maybe a sense in which just the way that it interacts with our brains, the fact that the final stage is integrating Mm -hmm. rather than disassociating and just getting sleepy, that – Do you think that could be related to these long-term lasting effects?
1: Yes. And again, what these drugs do to your brain is allow for new connections to be made. Right. So,
0: Which alcohol doesn't do. Exactly. Instance. No. Yeah. I mean,
1: I have to say psychedelics are completely different from the effects of alcohol, yeah. like experientially and neuro- neurologically. It's just very, very, very different things are happening.
0: Have you been uh, encouraged by your experience to meditate more since yeah. your experience? And, has, and have you yeah. succeeded at that?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. More so than I was before. I mean, I'm, obviously yeah. I'm not where I want to be. I felt in my experience and afterwards that there is so much more work to be done. For Mm. me personally, right? I'm like, I came out of it thinking, oh, I've just scratched the surface.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Kind of like a a partial beatific vision that you're going to move toward.
1: Exactly. You realize, it's almost like I saw just enough to realize what I had been hungry for and missing and needed to start to cultivate.
0: How do you think that your own experience meshes with what you know from the research? Was it typical? Was it atypical? Yeah, yeah,
1: Yeah, But th- here's the thing. Uh, these experiences feel so personal that you, it will never feel like typical. But yes, objectively, my experience was typical. Um, and if anything, I had probably experienced less of the euphoria that people often experience in okay. these things. Yeah. But it was no less impactful and kind of transformative for me, if that makes sense. So it wasn't like, oh, my gosh, this was the most fun experience I've ever had. It was not that. But it was a very, very important experience.
0: I'm going to give you a little latitude here to speculate. Mm -hmm. You're not speaking as a person who's familiar with the research, not even necessarily as a participant. Mm -hmm. Of course, you can't um, escape that. What do you think the possible implications might be for all of this, especially in your field of spiritual technology?
1: We, at our particular point in history, are so far removed from the deeply integrated way of being that I think that we're called to. I am not saying that we cannot become reintegrated in a way that we were designed or created and evolved to be with God and with others and with the natural world, the physical, natural world that we're destroying. You know, like we, I'm not saying we can't achieve that integration and holistic connection to each other, God and the physical world without psychedelics. However, I think that psychedelics do offer a potential predictable pathway for helping to facilitate that process and to give us the stimuli, the, the impetus, the the sort of like a, almost like a, a single shock, right? That can change the way that we go about and engage in our other behaviors, more n- normal actions and patterns and habits. Uh, you know, there's kind of like this joke in, amongst researchers that the difference between meditation and taking a psychedelic is that when you take a psychedelic, something will happen. You know that something will happen. This yeah. is a certainty. Sometimes when you recognize that the need for change personally, corporately, with the natural world, when the need for change is so significant, it's worth it's worth it. It's worth stepping out into the unknown.
0: And what do you think we should be especially cautious about? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, these are not going to become legal and widely available anytime soon. That would take quite a bit of mm-hmm. uh, electoral will and legislation yeah. and stuff. But, um, and so maybe that's part of the caution.
1: Yeah. I mean, things are happening quite quickly on the legalization front these days. A lot of prominent thought leaders are, are funding research and the research will probably eventually lead to some legalization in certain places. But that being said, yeah, I think I am cautious about um, the importance of contextualizing an intention. So I do not take these things lightly at all. It is super important for me. Any spiritual technology that I would engage with, I always have an intention. I know where I'm going. I know what my motivation is. I am very, very careful about what I open my mind to. And uh, my caution, my worry is that people will just use this research as an excuse to do drugs at a rave. And that's not what I'm talking about. Yeah.
0: Here's a devil's advocate question. We haven't talked about seizures, uh, but the neurological research Mm -hmm. on certain kinds of drugs and seizures shows some kind of similar stuff in terms of they both predictably produce mystical experiences in people, certain kinds of seizures. And the worry is, well, if you can take a pill or have a seizure and then have a spiritual experience, Mm -hmm. doesn't that mean it's not a spiritual experience? Isn't a spiritual experience by definition – Something non physical that God does for you. No, no. Okay, so why not?
1: (laughs) Well, first of all, again, you you are a physical being, so um, you would say it's impossible
0: that someone has a mm -hmm. mystical experience that if they were hooked up to an MRI machine would would not light up areas of of their brain. Yes. Okay.
1: I mean, I think even most dualists would say, well, sure. The God affects the mind and the mind affects the brain. So there would be some sort of causal interaction, some sort of interaction there. Um, Yeah. So my response to that is that uh, it is not actually predictable that you will have a spiritual experience. Okay. So the quality of your experience is determined by what you bring to it.
0: So seizures in a non-religious person might not produce mystical experiences.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And I would guess that it would actually be unlikely to. Yeah. But even if that, even if it did happen, when you go to a, a worship service and you listen to a song and we can let's say that we can predict that that song will do something to your brain. Does that mean that you're not meeting God in that song?
0: Hillsong certainly thinks they can yep, predict that, exactly. <laughs> and uh, judging by the sales numbers, they yeah. are right in their prediction. Yep, yeah, there you go. But there's sort of a second layer to that, which is a worry about it's kind of a, a, a common atheistic critique of sure. this stuff is that look, I mean, if a seizure can produce it, mm-hmm. then whatever you think is God acting mm-hmm. is merely some physical thing and you're deluding yourself. How do you respond to that counter argument?
1: The way that I approach this is that you can decide that the Christian narrative is in the Christian life is one worth pursuing without having these experiences. Right. So I can apply all of my rationality and my intellect and all of my epistemological tools to deciding that there is something in Christianity. There are reasons to believe, let's say that. And uh, let's say I have determined that there is something plausible about Christianity apart from my raw spiritual experience of it, right? So kind of like leaving out the atheistic critique that like, oh, you just think this because your brain got zapped, right? So my argument would be that if for whatever reason you have already decided that there is something to Christianity that is worth pursuing, then there are portals and pathways by which we know that we can make it more likely that you will experience the Christian narrative as a felt reality
0: yeah basically the fact that i'm a christian and i choose to do centering yes. prayer that yes. i choose to go to church and yep. experience the liturgy and take communion i mean all that is like i'm committed to christianity and i know that over two millennia yeah. this is the kind of stuff christians have done to yes. increase their faith
1: pascal many of you will have heard of pascal um, was a great thinker and, a, you know, philosopher, scientist, sort of, um, inventor,
0: proto-scientist, proto-scientist before, before, before science, science was
1: a science, thing. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, he had a really dramatic religious experience himself, but when you, when he writes about people who don't believe, but want to believe, right. He, what does he say to do? He, he asks, well, are you, are you praying? Are, are, you, are you going to mass? Are you, you know, you participating in the Lord's Supper? Like he basically says, do the stuff, do the things that make it more likely that you end up believing. And so, you know, this is a a longstanding posture within Christian theology is, you know, if you are drawn to this ultimate reality, for whatever reason, there are choices that you can make in your life that will help you experience it as a felt reality. And that's not manipulation.
0: So I have one more question about the research and and whatnot. And then I want to spend some time on where you're at now, Mm -hmm. because I think it provides really meaningful context. And I just really enjoyed chatting with you about that the last two weeks. Mm -hmm. So the last question about the research is um, what do you hope will Mm -hmm. be learned? Let's say in the coming 10 years about this stuff, like what would you be most interested or excited to find?
1: Interestingly, what I want is not for everybody to be taking psychedelics all the time. What I would really like is for the psychedelics research to give us insights into how we should be structuring our cities, our lives, like our, our community lives, our work lives, our our prayer lives. I'm much more interested in integrating peak experiences into our whole lives because I I I really am a big believer in um, the physical world being sacred, right? Our whole lives are are sacred in a sense, and I I want us to structure on so many levels, want us to structure our reality the world in which we live in a way that is the most conducive to us experiencing the sacredness of that reality at all times.
0: Thank you for being willing to talk about what we're about to talk about. It's not easy stuff. I guess I'll just lead you into it by giving my brief understanding. You mentioned a little bit in your the beginning of your story, you had not had the kind of experience you thought you should and the people mm-hmm. around you appeared to have. And the way you've been saying it recently to me is, You deeply desire a personal God Mm -hmm. and you believe in God and you uh, find all this evidence to stay Christian, Mm -hmm. but you're just not having that experience. And uh, can you just talk about that a little bit and then we'll we'll kind of relate it back to what we've been talking about?
1: Sure. So I've been quite open about the fact that belief has never come easy for me. Uh, I am very firmly entrenched within Christianity, and I structure my life and my work within the Christian framework. Um, I am very open to God and long for experiential knowledge of God, but it has always been a struggle for me to experience that in the way that other people um, do or report doing. And it is a difficult place to be in many people who have my experience just leave Christianity or... I was
0: going to say, even theologians keep doing theological work, which, you know, you could still do it. It's technically, Mm -hmm. it's a humanities discipline. Mm -hmm. And they just say, well, I don't believe anymore, but I'll keep being a theologian. I I think it's really interesting. uh, And I I think laudable that you're like, you're sticking with it and not just taking that comparatively maybe easier route.
1: Yeah. I mean, and a lot of, to be honest, a lot of people who have my experience go into religious studies. They start teaching at public universities um, and just start talking about the objective research on religion. Motivated and, by their
0: own lack of experience exactly. to just understand it yep. scientifically. Yeah.
1: yeah, And for me, it has prompted me to pursue um, participatory visions of the God nature relationship to do theology in such a way that I'm constantly working toward constructing a vision of the God-human relationship where we're active participants in it, right, and always receptive to the divine in our lives. But I for sure hold a lot of my theological doctrines more loosely than others do because of my own personal experiences or lack thereof.
0: Break that down, the sure. God-nature, right. God-human, in a little bit less uh, theological jargon, mm-hmm. meaning you're looking for an understanding of, of god and the physical world and humans as physical beings and a model of the way that god might interact with us in a way that's like takes very seriously both the physicality of it all and the fact that people's experiences are not uniform which yours is not uniform with some people in your communities right
1: exactly um and again like people are different right there are we have different cognitive styles we have different personalities and some people are perfectly happy to never have any sort of dramatic experiences because they've just always experienced God's reality. It's just always been a brute fact for them. Others of us have not had those experiences. And it's
0: almost the kind of thing you can't really question. It's like yeah. you don't want to say they're wrong because yeah. they're probably not wrong, especially if you believe in sure. God. But you also don't have, and I, I don't have it that way. So mm-hmm. I recognize the alienness mm-hmm. that you're describing as well. Someone's like I've just always known that God was there. Yeah, I'm like how the hell have you, (laughs) like, sign whatever, I'll have what he's having, you know, I I haven't had it that way. Um, But you don't also want to discount that, especially if you believe in God.
1: Exactly. I mean, I've been very fortunate that some of the most amazing people in my life have been Christians, right? So I am not somebody who has been like, well, all Christians are awful and have hurt me. And therefore I don't want to be a Christian. For me, it's been, oh, actually, there are some amazing Christians out there who are experiencing something that I am really drawn to. How do I get into that? So the question was like the God nature relationship, right? So the way that I think about um, the God in the physical world is not one in which you have like God over here and then like the natural world creation over on the other side of whatever, um, and you're trying to get God into the natural world. I don't think about it like that at all. And we have plenty of models. I play around with different versions of what I call theistic naturalisms, but we don't have to call it that. Basically, there are things like panentheism, which is one way in which theologians have structured their understanding of this, where the entire created world exists within God, but God is also more than the world. So that's one option.
0: And a a benefit for context here is, that would mean that anything that happens in the physical world mm-hmm. is God acting. Exactly. So, for instance, you have wanted these special kind of experiences. Yes. You're not getting them, but that doesn't mean that you're not getting God.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Um,
0: and and you yeah. know it. Like I feel for you. I personally, I I find that vision quite compelling. But on a biographical level, just sure. listening to your story, I feel, um, I feel the weight of that yeah, in, yeah. in your in your lack of experience of right. like, but. So when I see this Christian that I wanna be like, am I is that experiencing God? Yeah. And it I wanna say, yeah, yeah, that is right. experiencing God right. because you're seeing God's actual effects Yes. in the same world that you're a part yeah. of, even though you're a yeah. distinct biological being mm-hmm. from that person, right? Right,
1: right. And you're also sharing in relationship with that person, right? Right. And so also then sharing... you're getting God through exactly. that relationship, right? Exactly, exactly. through yeah. that person, through that relationship, and also through your shared space, right? So you're you're existing with, e- you know, you're existing in the same physical space with each other. You can, you know, imagine like a physical church that you're all in or something, and. So I work with an understanding of the spiritual that is never divorced from the physical, right? So if, if, you, if it's a binary and you either are knowing and experiencing God or you're not, then I think we've already lost the game. I hold to a model of the natural world where to be natural, to be fully natural, to be fully even physical, is to be involved with God and the spirit in some way. And there are various ways of talking about that theologically.
0: Okay, this last question, you're not allowed to use any abstract okay. language. All right. You're not allowed to do an intellectual answer.
1: Okay,
0: Emotively, affectively, uh-huh. in your spiritual experience, what is it that you have been missing that you really hope will come? And whether or not yep. it does, how would you describe that yep. just on a personal level?
1: Right, right. Um, John Wesley once wrote in his journal that – he wanted the faith that no one can have without knowing that they have it. So to break that down real quick yeah. and put it in my own words, sure. what I'm saying is that I want to not only know that a personal God exists and loves me, but to also know that I know that. I mean, I've had people before tell me, oh, you do have faith. You just don't know. You're, you're, you're living in faith and that's enough. And I, I do long for a sense of actually being in rela- relationship to God in a way that I can say, yes, I feel that I am in relationship with God.
0: If you walked out the street and got hit by a bus today, Mm -hmm. I would say you died a person of faith. And I don't think you would disagree with that. I would not. But you want more of that subjective assurance and Mm -hmm. and just robust personal experience. Exactly. And as someone who uh, we've been talking about this off and on for the last two weeks, you know, those kind of personal experiences over the last four years for me, five years or so, have really changed... Uh, my faith Mm -hmm. and I want them for you. And that's kind of the hardest part of this becoming your friend is, and it it presents a problem for me, sort of like the problem of evil presents a problem of like, well, it seems like Sarah should be getting these. Like, does everybody get these if they want them? And, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe people like you uh, who don't have them as easily and for whatever reason, I don't know what reasons that is. Mm -hmm. Maybe the spiritual technologies are more important Mm -hmm. and maybe they're less important for certain other people who have this, just always had this sense of God around. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I sort of don't like, and I do like ending on this paradox because this is the real world. Right. Um, And we're two people in a room, both pursuing the same goal and and experiencing it differently. Right. And how do we make sense of that? And how do we have room for that within the church? And I don't know. I just, I feel this sadness for you, but also this gratefulness Mm. for your work in spite of that.
1: I will say this, my lack of experiential faith, sorry, experiential relationship with God has driven me to do most of my work that I think will be the most impactful. And if that continues to be the case, then there is a part of me that will not regret that.
0: I can't hear that without thinking of Mother Teresa, right? I mean, she's the most famous example. (laughs) She lost God's voice in her life, which had been very clear for decades. And yet she didn't quit. She could have stopped doing her ministry. Mm -hmm. I don't know uh, if she got it back before she died or not, but like... If you were to say, well, in those last 30 years, Mother Teresa was not experiencing Christ. Mm-hmm. That's insane. Right. She experienced Christ in the poor. And so, I don't know. I mean, that doesn't, that's not satisfying totally to me, right. especially when I have just hear you talk about it in our personal conversations, but it's something, and it's maybe the best I can do to make sense of it right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just want to say that, like, I mean, I do consider what you have to be real faith. Uh, in fact... I'm more more dedicated in some ways than my own and, and many other people I know, I hope and pray that you will get that experience or that if you don't, it's because mm-hmm. you will end up helping so many other exactly, people. Exactly, right. And then I think you'll some... be okay with that, I guess, because <laughs> um, we don't all get the same yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, deck yeah. of cards, right? So anyway, I don't know. I felt like I wanted to end there because it, that's just where I end when yeah. I think about the stuff we've been talking about. Right. It's not, uh, there's no nice button yeah. for it. But just thank you for keeping going with
1: it. No. And thank you, Dan. This has been a lot of fun.
0: Thank you to Laura Condoragian for editing this conversation uh, with Sarah. I have a link to her book as well as um, a collection of writing on theology and science that is considerably cheaper than her book in which she has a chapter. Uh, Those are in the show notes. Also in the show notes is a link to the Patreon and a link to the Facebook group if you are a patron and an email address. Let me know what you're thinking about. See you guys next week.